Southside, Southside, What up, y'all? Zed Lover. It is Come On, Son, the podcast. Y'all know how I get down each and every week. Big shout out, of course, and rest in peace to Combat Jack, the reason why I'm even podcasting in the first place. I will always keep that man's name on the tip of my tongue. Combat Jack, one of the greatest, if not the greatest podcaster of all time, the Combat Jack Show. May his soul rest in eternal peace. This is being brought to you by CigarsInternational.com. Go to CigarsInternational.com for all your cigar needs, whether you need cigars, whether you need a cutter, whether you need a lighter, whether you need a punch, whether you need a carrying case, go to CigarsInternational.com. They take care of me, and they will absolutely Take care of you. When you check out, put in Ed, the number 10, OFF, for 10% of all your purchases. 10% off for all your purchases at CigarsInternational.com and brought to you locally by Nissan of South Morrow, 6889 Jonesboro Road. Those are my people. They take care of me. I'm driving that 2017 Platinum Pathfinder right now because of Nissan South and Morrow. Thank you, Chris White and the whole crew, Leo Span. Dwayne Nails and everybody over there for always taking care of me, my homegirl Raquel, all of them over there. Now, today, we are going to the world of Hollywood on Come On, Son, the podcast. Uh, the man that is about to be in this studio with me and sit down to talk to me is esteemed actor and musician, Mr. Bo Keen Woodbine, who grew up in Harlem, New York. You know Bo Keen from Ray. You know Bo Keen from Life. You know Bo Keen from M. Night Shyamalan's Devil. You know Bo Keen from Jason Lyrics. You know Jay Keen. Well, it's not lyrics. It's lyric. Jason's lyric. And, of course, you know Bo Keen from Dead President. And he also is known for his role as Mike Mulligan on the second season of Fargo, which he was nominated for a Black Reel Award and was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award and a Critics' Choice Television Award. And he is also in this brand-new show, on the USA Network called Unsolved, where he's playing a detective named uh, Darren Dupes. They call him Dupes on the show. All right. And uh, it's all about the murders of Biggie and Tupac. And I watched it, and it is absolutely phenomenal. But we're going to touch on that just a little bit about what he learned. But I definitely want to talk to him about his music, um, about his acting uh, about being from New York City and being from Harlem, how he got in the game, how he maintains his favorite role. And there is absolutely less than six degrees of separation between Bo Keen Woodbine and myself. So we're going to talk about all that right here on Come On, Son, the podcast with the one and only Mr. Bo Keen Woodbine. Come on, son. Hey, 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 hey. See, y'all, as y'all can hear, we got a lot of uh, hellos going on and a whole lot of good stuff. And joining me in the studio right now, about to take his seat after he say what up. It's <laughs> my dude, Mr. Bo Key Woodbine is in the house with us right here on Come On, Son, the podcast. I believe that this is uh, this his mic, Krista? This is your mic right here, brother. Yeah, all right. Check one, check two. Yeah, there you go. What's up, brother? What's cracking, bro? How you doing, man? Oh, All the man. way from Harlem, USA, which right. which is which always <laughs> makes me laugh because you Harlem cats. I'm from Queens, right? Born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. You born in Harlem? 
No, I was. I got there probably when I was around eight. Okay. But what kills me about Harlem, when Harlem cats don't think they're a borough in New York City, am I right? Indeed. Am I right? Yeah. No, this is Harlem. This ain't Manhattan. This is Harlem. No, it's a world unto itself, my brother. Yeah, it absolutely you know, is, it's, man. It's, it's another planet. <laughs> Harlem is something else, man. You know what I just I, I learned about you recently, man? I didn't know you were a musician. Yeah, 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 yeah. I play guitar, man. And, and I didn't know you fronted a rock band either. Indeed, indeed. 13 Purple Dragons. 13 Purple Why would you come up with 13 Purple Dragons, bro? Well, I mean, I leave it to individual interpretation, but to me, 13 is a transformation, purple's royalty, and, I mean, you know what a dragon is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How long you been doing that? I've been playing guitar since I was 13. So. Really? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the thing that kept me um, out of the mix. You, you remember where Harlem was like, or just New York in general in the 80s and right. early 90s and everything like a that. A lot of drug dealing going on, yeah. a lot of shootings. Yeah. So it's what kept me um, kept me cool. Okay. Yeah. So that kept you out of the mix, just just doing the music type yeah. thing. When did you when did you get into acting, and how did how did the acting part? Because I heard a story about that, but I want you to tell the story about how acting started for you. Okay, I was an extra um, on this show. Well, not the show. This this movie called Juice. Okay, I was an extra in Juice um, just to make money for um, my tattoo. Um, I wanted to get a <laughs> tattoo of Africa, and. Um, it was really on my mind, and I had my mind made up, and I was like 17 or whatever. And I didn't tell my mom what I needed the money for, but she was like, what makes you think I have $75 to give you? Right. You know what I mean? So you have to figure a way to uh, work this out. How about you uh, go to this audition for extras? And so she opened up Backstage Magazine, which back in the day, on the last couple of pages of Backstage Magazine, you would see open calls for actors who didn't necessarily have any, um, you know, uh, how can I say, um, uh, headshots or anything like that, or even mm-hmm. experience, right. but you could come in and try to, you know, be an extra and see if you qualify. Maybe you could get your career going, whatever. So I took my mom's advice, and I went there to um, to the uh, address that it said, make a long story short, next thing you know, I was an extra in Juice, but because I used to have dreads, they said I kind of favored uh, Tretch, so they asked if I would be his stand-in. Oh, really? Yeah, and I had no idea what a stand-in was, but I said, yeah, sure, as long as I get paid. And they said, well, you get paid a little more. <laughs> right. I said, okay, so I'll be Tretch's stand-in, whoever that is. You didn't even know who Tretch was? <laughs> well, um, OPP wasn't out yet. We talking about we talking about going back to, if I was 17, this had to be like 90, 91. Okay. You know what I mean? Um, I think it was 91 or something like that. So anyway, um, I did my due diligence. I did the gig. And then um, about a year and a half later, the same woman who cast me as an extra called me out of the blue and asked if I would um, uh, audition for uh, a movie called Strapped. Okay. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I had two tokens in my pocket. I was broke. I had one token to get there, one token to get back. And um, I said, yeah, all right, fine. And I went down there, making a long story short, I ended up getting the gig. There you go. I'm back. <laughs> so that's how it happened for you. You stood in for Tretch on on Juice. Did you meet Pac? Yeah. Um, it was and you turned Bokeem story. off now. Hold on. Bokeem is off. His mic is off. Okay. Check. There you go. All, All right. right. We good now. All right. 
Okay, so you stood in, you stood in for Tretch. And, you know, Pac and Tretch was tight. So oh, yeah, absolutely. When he saw me in Tretch's gear, he probably thought I was uh, Tretch. And so I just remember somebody saying, yo, Tretch, Tretch, Tretch. And I kept walking, and then I feel somebody pulling on me, and I was like, hey, you know, what's up? And then uh, it was Pac, <laughs> and he just started laughing. He was like, oh, my bad, my bad, sorry. I thought he was somebody else. I was like, yeah, whatever, man. <laughs> You had no idea who he was either. Yeah, but years later, uh, you know, we laughed. We laughed our heads off about that. Yeah, because you ended up doing the I Ain't Mad at Your video, right? right. How did that come about? Uh, Park requested me, you know. Um, we had met before at the premiere of this picture I did called Jason's Lyric. Okay. And um, Oh, the little picture you did called Jason's <laughs> Lyric. Come on, Bokeem, bro. That's a classic right there, brother. Thanks, man. Thank you, brother. Um, so we was at the premiere, and he dug the flick. And we just chopped it up a little bit, and um, that was it. I didn't, I didn't see him for a little while after that. And then um, the next thing you know, uh, you know, my agent was calling me. My agent at the time was calling me. It was like, you know, Tupac's representatives reached out, and you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't sure what it was about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because at that time, you know, he was in the mix. And so I was like, well, what, what, what could this possibly be about? You know? And then it was like. Um, he wants you to uh, uh, be in his music video. And I was like, what? Oh, this is fantastic. Most definitely. So, you know, uh, they sent the car. I went over there to meet him. The first time I, I saw him on the set, you know, we didn't shoot anything. We took a series of um, photographs that somebody still has that film out there somewhere. Wow. Every once in a while you'll see, like, a couple of flicks in me and Pac, you know, like, stone drunk with our shirts off like mugging for the camera acting a fool um that came out of that session and uh it was just for us to meet and hang out and kind of like you know feel the vibe a little bit and uh he was just so hospitable and uh he he really wanted to make sure that i was comfortable in the environment because quite frankly he had a lot of shooters around him okay you know there was a lot of you know there was a lot of tough guys around him mm-hmm. you know what i mean and um, I was I was there solo dolo, and I was out of my element, you know. And he was the only person that I knew there and only person that I was really vibing with, mm. you know. And everybody was on their best behavior and everything. But, I mean, you know, when when, when you in an environment that um, they're, they're, how can I say, um, they're organized, if mm-hmm. you understand what I'm trying to say. And so I was just like, okay, I'm out of my element. Um, but Pac wanted to make extra sure that I was comfortable and cool so, you know, it was, it was just a great, great... This is right in the middle of the quote-unquote East Coast, West Coast. Dave, were you uncomfortable being from New York and everybody knowing that you're from New York and being there? Yeah, because, um, you know, even prior to that, um, I had little run-ins with people in L.A. that they were very clear about the fact that they didn't like all these New York Negroes coming into their environment and, you know, enjoying the enjoying all of the rewards of right. being a young man uh, with a little bit of recognition in, in, in their environment. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, but luckily for me, the cats that, you know, I was cool with were so powerful and so heavy duty. Mm-hmm. And they didn't judge me as being from New York. They just judged me as Bokeem. Right. And, you know, Bokeem is, um, I'm clean. I'm never, I'm, I don't got no dirt on me. You know what I mean? So um, I was no threat. And so they got to know me as a person. And I like who I was as a person. 
So they just let everybody know, look, this dude right here is cool. You right. Know, if you see him, you know, just say what's up, keep it moving. Um, and uh, no negativity ever came my way because they, they gave me a pass. That's funny. Pass. That's funny, bro, Kim, because when I lived in L.A., the same thing happened to me. But first and foremost, I knew Mike Concepcion very well. Right. So he's an OG shot called a super OG. So yeah. I was good on the crip side. And then I had a couple of people on the blood side that I knew that kind of took me around and introduced me to different sets and was like, when you see Ed, Ed is money. Ed is good. Don't don't nobody. There you go. You know, so because he's, he's fine. I don't care. I don't care how you feel about whatever. This dude is all right. Just leave him alone. You know what I mean? Same so that that was a that's a blessing, that's right? That's a super blessing. <laughs> that's a super blessing because I don't think a lot of people understand that dynamic. Tell me your favorite Tupac story. My favorite Tupac story? Yeah. Oh man. And we're a podcast, so you can be as raw as you want to be. Um mm, man. Oh man. I got a couple, but I'm uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't we all? Oh man. You gotta understand Pac. Pac was a one of a kind individual. He was not, he was not, you don't see cats like that anymore. He was somebody who was just being himself at all times. And I had told this story before, but you know what I'm saying? I, I'll just tell the same story again, but it's a pretty good one, I think. Uh, I was working on a picture with him called Gridlocked. Okay. And it had this actress, um, Lucy Lou. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with Of course. Um, actress Lucy Lou. She was new to the game and she was very, um, um, she was very, uh, how can I say, excited about being in the movie. And um, Jim Belushi is always also in that movie, right? No, that was gang related. Gang related, Jim Belushi. Okay, right before that. it was gridlock. Right. Um, but anyway, so she was in order to burn off little excess energy. She was practicing a screamer, which is you know Filipino martial arts and involves these two sticks. Well, I mean, there's several different weapons, but two of the weapons that they deal with are these little short sticks. And anyway, so she was practicing, practicing, practicing. And um, Pac, Pac was trying to get at her. Okay. <laughs> so Pac, you know, one time I see him and uh, and her trailer just, you know, waving the sticks around and stuff. And I, was, I said, I didn't pay no mind, right? So about a half hour later, comes by my trailer. I'm like, man, what, you know, what's wrong? You look, you look a little vexed, man. He was like, man. This girl Lucy over there, she got me waving these sticks around. Man, I don't give a fuck about none of that shit. <laughs> 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 I'm just trying to get them draws. You know? <laughs> oh my god! I said, well, how did it work? But he said it didn't. I said, oh, don't worry, man. You know it's all good. <laughs> At least yeah, you know absolutely. A little bit more about it. Jesus now. Christ, man. <laughs> You see what I'm talking about? That's that dude was oh, always that dude, 100 percent all the time, man, all the freaking time, every minute. And then here we are in uh, 2018, mm. and um, Unsolved mm. is coming out on the murders of Tupac and Biggie, and you're actually playing a detective that was part of a task force in 2006, 2007, yes, sir. that uh, reinvestigated mm. the murders of Tupac. And Christopher Wallace, Biggie. Mm. And I watched it, and there is some information in there that will really blow your head off. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. I'm glad you feel that way. And you and it is coming from a dude that that was there, bro. Yeah, I know, yeah. 
you talking to a dude that saw Tupac, that spoke to Tupac before they walked out of the damn casino. He stopped and we had a conversation because he was with my man Stretch every damn day of his life until he went to jail and then they kind of had a falling out and he ended up with death row. But that's a whole nother damn chapter, chapter of his life, it, as many chapters. And uh, we had a conversation before he walked out and that's the last time I saw him and the, and the last time I had a conversation. But here you are playing... Darren, du- Darren Dupree, mm-hmm. what did you learn from playing that role? I, I, I'll be honest with you, brother. I learned a couple of things that really surprised me. And one of the first things that I learned was that there were some law enforcement individuals who were sincerely emotionally invested in solving the case. Right. And I know that's, that's, that's probably not exciting information, but that's what really blew my mind. Um, Actually, starting with with uh, Officer Russell, Detective Russell Poole. Russell Poole. Right. Wow. There were some cats that were on the law enforcement side of things that really, really, truly like were invested emotionally. Like, yeah. They, in, in their heart. Yeah. They wanted to figure out what happened, and that really blew my mind because if you remember, and you got a good memory because you you got a great memory. <laughs> um, is um, they it almost seemed like there was a media blackout after they were assassinated. Mm-hmm. It was like they were assassinated, and then you didn't hear shit. You didn't, there was no follow up investigation. I mean, there, there was no um, there were no reports about the investigation that was being disseminated to the general public. Mm-hmm. It, 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 are, would you agree? Yeah, that I agree 100%. Like, like, that they, they would, they would, they would it almost like they, it we like, all we all had the feeling that the LAPD didn't care. Right. They didn't care, right? So um, I was shocked at how, what was going on behind the scenes that the rest of us didn't know about. Mm-hmm. And the investigation into their murders was so bizarre, man, in the sense that, the, the the coincidences I really can't give away too much, but the the coincidences that were occurring, if you were to write this as a movie, yeah, nobody would believe it. Absolutely, like, this shit is impossible. Yeah. There's no way this cat is going to be here at the same time that this cat is here, and then they're both linked to this third party and boom, all this kind of stuff. It was, it was, it was crazy. It remains a very, a very. Um, educational uh, project for me to be involved with how much I learned and, and it also got a very interesting perspective on what it takes to tackle a high profile murder uh, when when uh, you know the eyes of the world are on you and this that and the other and and also um, how egos come into play mm. just like just similarly to the world of hip-hop or sports or what have you, you know, in law enforcement, there's several different branches, as we all know. But ATF might not get along with FBI, who might not get along with local PD, who might not get along with detectives and sheriff. So you got all these little things coming into play that really make for almost a Shakespearean type drama. But this is real life. Yeah, yeah, and real people's lives are on the line. Yeah, and and we sometimes look at the police departments of different cities and and as machines, but these are human beings. Right. And I like the fact that Unsolved really explored the human side of the officers, not just Greg Kading and Russell Poole, but your character and every other character in there. There's a humanization to them, so they're not just looked upon as, well, why couldn't y'all do that? And it really explains how 
difficult it is, especially when nobody's talking. How do you solve a crime when nobody's t- nobody was talking? Nobody wants to talk, and then you have to find other means to get leverage. Right. Which means you might have to go through somebody's refuse in order to come up <laughs> with something that you can hold over their head. Yeah. And um, these are the these are the intimate, intricate details that I think the audience is going to really, really enjoy because we respect the intelligence of our audience. And we, we, we treat them and show them respect. And um, we act as though everybody in the audience that's watching the show knows how to write a script, mm-hmm. knows how to act, knows directing, knows lighting. Know, you know what I mean? We act like our audiences are uh, almost our, like our peers, our equals. Yeah. It's really, really good. It's really good. It's going to be on the USA Network. It's called Unsolved. We're going to be doing a, a live broadcast with oh, them. Dude. Yeah, with, with uh, Josh Dumel is in it. It's, it's so, so good. I don't want to give away too much, all right? But when it comes out, I think it's February 27th, I believe. February 27th on the USA Network. Folks, I'm telling you, watch this show. It's called, it is absolutely, it's well acted, it's well directed. The script is good. It is gripping. It will have you. Ready when one episode goes off, I'll have you ready to see the next episode automatically. And Bo Kim, you did your thing as usual, oh, bro. Thank you, man. Oh, bro. You killed it. Yeah, you oh, killed thanks, it, bro. Man. You, you always kill it, though, bro. You know, there are six. Man. I was telling people in my intro before you came in, I said there's less than six degrees of separation for Bo Kim Woodbine and I in our acting careers. And I'm going to tell you why. Bo, I did Who's the Man, directed by. Ted Demi. Bokeem did Life. Who directed Life? The late Ted Demi. The late, great Ted Demi. Yeah. Yeah. Who was actually the guy who gave me life on television with Yo! TV Raps. Wow. That's how I got on Yo! TV Raps because Yo, of Ted Demi. I about you all the time. Jesus. Yeah, that was no my, idea. oh my God. I loved, <laughs> loved you, man. I loved him too. Yo. I loved him so much, man. It really broke my heart he when, he, a cool cat, when he passed away, man. Yeah, that was fucking How was the set? Of life, you guys must oh, have had a ball, let dude. Let me tell you, first of all, can I take my jacket off? Yes, please yeah, take your jacket off, bro. Take, get comfortable, man. Get comfortable. <laughs> this is not your regular interview, man. This, this is your saying? boy Ed. We just sitting back, kicking it. I've known Bokeem since the early Yo, '90s, bro. Ed go back over 20 years. Hell yeah! So, so tell me, tell me about life. You got oh, Martin man. Lawrence, Eddie Murphy, Bernie Mac, Bernie, Anthony Anderson, Anthony Anderson, Guy Tory, yourself. I mean, that's this is a this is a crazy cast of characters, Yo, man. It was insane because um, I don't know if you remember, my character was a mute. Yes. So he doesn't talk, right? So every day I would go to the set. As soon as I get in my trip, I would say one word what I want for breakfast. You know what I mean? Okay. I would just say what I want for breakfast. And after I make my breakfast order with the PA, I stopped talking all day. I would not say one word while I was working the whole time we were shooting. You know what I mean? So these cats, you got some of the funniest people alive, right? Yes. They trying to, like, get me to talk and shit, you know? (laughs) So they were like, you know, it was hard, man, because... These dudes are so funny. Yeah, you got yeah. Murphy fucking with you. Know, you. Oh you got God. Martin Lawrence oh, fucking with you. Know, you got Bernie Mac like... dumbass fucking with you. God <laughs> Tory is fucking with you. I'm going to get him to talk. 
I'm gonna get him to talk. <laughs> he go, this motherfucker gonna talk on this you set. You gonna today. talk on That's this set? That's another six degrees of separation. Bernie and I did. Who's the man together too? There you go. And then Bo Keem. So you didn't talk the whole the whole fucking time. Eddie got me finally because he did some more. He did some more dirty trick shit. He was like, oh, uh, uh, Bo Keem, uh, you didn't hear? I'm like, I would just gesture. Right. And he'd be like, you rapped. Yeah, man, you rapped. You're done for the day. I was like, yes, that's what I'm fucking talking about. He's like, I got you. Like, oh, <laughs> how long? How long was that shoot, <laughs> man? Um, how long was you on? Forever. I was only there like five, six weeks, but they were there for months. And months. Only there for five, six weeks is a lot of time, bro. It's a lot of time to we be all, quiet. It, we are, it, it is a lot, a lot of time, time to, to be, be quiet. quiet, and we all forget that Rick James is actually in life. We forget about Rick James's Rick part. James, good job. In the yes, you know, he was. Rick James was man. in life, man. No doubt. What did you hear about it? Was it was it something that came to you through your agent? It was very interesting. Um, I don't know if you, you're familiar with the actor Oba Babatunde. Absolutely. So I, I oh, first of all, how could anybody that loves television, film, and movies, if you don't know who Oba Babatunde is, you need to go kill yourself. <laughs> that man was in Dream Girls. Dig it. Part of the original cast wow. of Dream Girls on Broadway. Oba wow. Babatunde can do it all. No question about it. Sing, dance, ride act, a horse, ride, everything. Move a woman, right? Knock you out. Yeah. Shoot a gun. He back, can do everything. Back in the days you had to know how to do all of that. Yes, sir. Um, but anyway, um, so they asked me to, it was um, Brian, um, oh my God, who's Ron Howard's producing partner? Um, Brian Grazer. Brian Grazer, thank you, brother. Um, Brian Grazer, uh, Ted Demi, okay, okay, so was, I'm convoluting the story. Ted Demi um, just wanted to have a meeting, yeah, sit down. So we had a sit down, and then he was like, I like your energy, I want to introduce you to Brian Grazer, but you're going to have to audition. I was like, shit, I don't have a problem with audition. I, I mean, I assumed I would have to audition. So they had me audition for Oba Baba Tunde's part, but oh, that wow. was a very old, older guy. Who you know actually narrates pretty much the entire story. Right. So right. they had me actually do the narration, and I just, like, you know, I tried to imagine what I would feel like in my 80s, and um, I did the narration, and then when I kind of, like, came back to myself, it was real quiet. And um, Brian Grazer was looking at me, and Ted Demi was just kind of, like, smiling. And um, I wasn't sure what was happening. I was like, man, I don't know, is this good or bad? Because they weren't saying anything. So right. I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, Ted Demi was like, Bokeem, um, thank you. Uh, we'll get back to you. And then Brian Grazer was like, thank you very much for all your preparation. And then I split. And I was like, man, I'm not sure how that went. And then my agent called probably about a day or two later, and he was like, um, so listen, Ted Demi wants you to play this part of some of a character called Can't Get Right. And I was like, okay, so what happened to the other thing? And he was like, you're much too young. And I was like, yeah, I knew that. I don't know what you know i <laughs> Right. So I was like, well, so get me the lines. He's like, there are no lines. I was like, what do you mean there's no lines? I got to prepare, you know, prepare my stuff, man. And he was like, the character doesn't speak. I was like, what you mean the character doesn't speak? You know what I mean? It's like, the character doesn't speak, his names can't get right. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm going to say yes. You know, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. And um, that's that's how I found out about it. So um, I guess uh, Ted Demi just felt like I could do it, and he had me read Oba's part kind of to show Brian Grazer what I could do, I guess. Right. And so that's, that's how it happened. It Can't Get Right is a character that is a... It's a legendary character now. Wow. Without you even uttering a word. 
because 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 it can't get right it gave us some one of the greatest parts of the whole entire movie that's my baby boss <laughs> right can't get right couldn't talk but he sure could fuck away girl could <laughs> man that was a great that was a fantastic that was actually more of like a comedic role for you right. i mean coming off of strapped and everything else that you had done you no know what question i mean about it and and those dudes just being in that environment around those cats man i i just tried to absorb Whatever comedic timing I might have, it came from being on the set with them dudes. Hmm. Yeah. Your favorite role you've played so far? Wow. I'll ask you, I'll ask you a two-parter. First, your favorite role, and then which one do people recognize you more for on the streets? Okay. Uh, I would say, man, that's a tough one. Right now, I'll probably say my favorite role is Mike Milligan. Okay. On the show on Fargo. On Fargo. Yes, sir. That's probably my favorite role right now. Because it allowed me to kind of do stuff that I always felt I could do, just didn't have a chance to. Um, and right now, believe it or not, but the role I get recognized the most for is Joshua from this film, Jason's Lyric. Get out of here. Even 20-something years later. I mean, if you More so than Dead President. Even more so. Like, it would probably be um, uh, Joshua, then Can't Get Right, and then uh, Cleon from Dead President. So yeah. Like, top three. Okay, okay, because Cleon from Dead Presidents was amazing. Did you dig that one? Yeah, oh my God, who didn't dig? Who didn't dig Dead President? And what actor out there that's ever been in a movie didn't wish he was in fucking Dead <laughs> President or wish he was in Life or Jason's Lyrica or any of those things that 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 you've done? How do you choose? Uh, uh, how do you choose what you'll do and what you won't do? The stuff that I haven't been that happy about, I did because I needed the bread. <laughs> Just, honesty that's, is that's, that's, oh man i love your honesty that's, that's about that i remember honest. having this this, this yeah. conversation with uh none other than monique and then i think that about soul plane and i was like soul plane was trash monique it was a horrible movie it was trash. no baby soul plane was good and then the, i think two a week later dl hughley sits in front of me and me and dl I said I said the same thing to DL. DL, what were you doing at Soul Plane? You know, what DL said, "Bro, I needed the money. The mortgage was due." That's honesty. That's what I'm talking about. We all have done movies that we. I'm like, Bahama Hustle, shit. They was paying. I needed to get that bread paid. That mortgage was due, bro. Hey, look, you know we're gonna do what we have to do. Absolutely, you know, and it's all legal, you know. So, yeah, no, look, the stuff that I haven't been proud of, um, you know. Uh, in hindsight, I'm proud of it now because it, it it led to the to to the to the other stuff. But um, once I had the opportunity to um, be discerning, I think, I, and this is only relatively recently, I'm trying to choose characters that have um, a different um, essence on the inside than what you see on the outside. Okay. So I like to throw people for a loop. So if a person is is uh, their exterior is is very combative or this that and the other, I like to try to find a thing about them that isn't like that. The thing about them that might be a little bit more compassionate. If a person is um, perceived as weak on the outside, I like to figure out what's strong about them and then play that as an undertone. So um, I like to find characters that may be. Um, uh, an archetype and, and you know, um, something that people are real familiar with so that I can deconstruct them internally and 
find out what it is about them that is contrary to their external appearance. Once you once you moved from Harlem to Los Angeles in about 93, 94, 94 to pursue your acting career, did you ever take acting lessons? Uh, no, I never did. Um, and uh, I just started reading uh, a lot of books in the past, I would say, 10 years. And um, just, I guess, being self-taught. Okay. You know, um, and even little random bizarre exercises I would construct for myself. There's a lot of boredom when you're an actor. <laughs> there, there is. There's a lot of boredom, and it's just a matter of how you fill up your time. So I would develop little weird games. Like, even if I'm just watching a commercial and I would see an actor give a line, I would say, well, how would I give that line? You know what I'm saying? And okay. I'll, I'll go back and, and give my reading of it and my rendition of it. And so I would say... You know, just little head games I'll play with myself and also um, the the variety of books that I would read, the different methods. Um, so even though I didn't sit through the class, because my thing is I tried going to class twice and it was just, I couldn't be anonymous. It was just, everybody was kind of like, even if I sat in the back, everybody was, you know, in my grill, you know, and it made it, right. it, made, it it made it uncomfortable for me to, to learn. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So, anyway. Yeah, so even even going to acting class, it's like okay, I'm here because I want to get better. Right. But y'all not letting me get better because y'all looking at me like, oh, it's Bo King Woodbine. What the hell is he doing in here? Right. Exactly. Well, you probably get that when you in Walmart, bro. <laughs> indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? But I wanted to. Uh, if I'm gonna learn something, like you know what I mean, I, I I I have to be in an environment where I'm just treated like everybody else. And for whatever reason, in L.A. That's not going to happen in the acting schools, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think um, what will probably happen is, like, if I have to do a very specific dialect or if I have to play somebody who's very, very famous one day, if that ever happens, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get a coach privately. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Who would you want to play? Uh, uh, Bob Marley. Um, what else would I like to Complex play? character. You yeah. picked a complex man. You know what I mean? Bob was a complex man. Exactly. I would like to play him. Um, Ever see one person drive the economy of an entire country before? See what I'm saying? Or All these years later? Carry an uh, entire nation on his shoulders. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's a heavy gig. There was a cat named Toussaint Louverture. Okay. Who was a, a revolutionary um, long, long time ago in Haiti. Pretty much um, um, started the uh, revolution that ousted the um, colonizers from Haiti. Mm -hmm. um, I think he would be a, a great character. And there was also a bad cat named um, Yanga. He was a prince from Gabon. And uh, a lot of people don't know, um, many, many years ago, centuries ago, some of the first slaves that were taken were taken to Mexico. Oh, really? A lot of people don't know that. So anyway, this cat, um, um, they, you know, they captured him. They took him across the ocean with a bunch of other captives. And what ends up happening is when the ship lands to port in Mexico, they pull down the rampart, and as soon as they did that, and he saw daylight, you know what I'm saying, whatever, he uh, grabbed the nearest um, guard's knife, slit his throat, and took off running. And all the other slaves that were on the... This is one of the reasons they started shackling slaves' feet. Okay. All the other slaves that were on the um, boat, they ran with him. And somehow, he's in a foreign land. It'd be like if, you know, you and I jumped off a spaceship in uh, Mars or some shit. So somehow this cat um, found uh, 
this this place where there were a lot of um, indigenous folks, Indians, mm-hmm. that were living there and hiding from the Spanish government because the Spaniards at that time were just 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 merciless in how they persecuted the uh, indigenous peoples there. So he ended up hooking up with them, and they made peace and had a peaceful coexistence. And every once in a while, they would they would do raids on the uh, on the Spaniards, get supplies and arms and food and shit that they need, and they disappear. Anyway, uh, about 30 years after he'd been doing this, there was a young upstart Spanish soldier who was like, what is everybody in the village talking about? Younger, younger this, younger that. And so he took it upon himself to try to take it to younger, but younger took it to him. And um, whooped that ass. <laughs> and, um, to the point where the, um, the king of Spain was forced to sign a treaty mm. of peace, which gave Africans their first free lands in Mexico. Oh, wow. It's two stories. It's like, it's like Braveheart. Wow. Yeah. So that's that. I would love to play him or yeah. at least be involved with making that movie happen. So it's probably the three the three um, people I would love to play if I had the opportunity. What what role did you turn down that you wish you'd never turned down, or is there one? Uh, yeah, but it's it's like kind of like um, can't really get into the politics of it, but let's just say it's a picture. That's relatively well known, but the only reason I was mad that I didn't do it is because they had offered me kind of like a three-picture deal Okay. to do it, and um, I had heat on me from Jason's Lyric and some other stuff, and um, the studio was like, look, we'll, we'll, um, we'll give you this role, but we picked the other two, and, the, and you know, I was like 20, 21 years old, and it just didn't set well with me. I couldn't imagine them picking the role for me. You know what I mean? And so the cat that went on to do the role, it's a good dude, had a great successful career, still doing his thing. Um, you know, he's been on shows that have been syndicated. This mm-hmm. thing, you know, he just took off. And there was a lot of times when I was in the crib, broke, trying to figure <laughs> out what the next job was. And I was like, damn, maybe I should have taken that part. You know right. I mean? But I can't even really tell you what it is, so that probably takes takes the fun out of it. But... You know, just as an example. How do you, how do you deal with the downtime? What do you do in your downtime? Is it the, the, the band that keeps you going? Uh, for me, like, I'm I'm in a great place right now career-wise, so mm-hmm. if I have some downtime, I'm not mad. Okay. But in the past, I would say it's um, training with um, Shifu Xian Ming, you know, the monk in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so training with him, um, you know, uh, I, I have a great support system with some of uh you know my elders my older brothers like the RZA you know Wesley Snipes right you know what I'm saying Cats there's another like six degrees of separation Wesley and I did undisputed together there you go me Wesley and Ving right. <laughs> small world all right that's what it is so you know um you know they're always there to to lend the ear so that was always helpful through the through the hard times and um. You know, I got a great woman, so that's that was very helpful. Had was, and remains very helpful. And also, I think um, believing in myself and and trying to be athletic in some type of capacity. You know, what I'm saying you got to do your push-ups, you got to do your sit-ups, just to get the blood going. You right. Know what I'm saying it's easy to just sit there in a funk. You know, particularly when, um, like I have no plan B. So when times were hard. Um, it was, for lack of a better word, it was scary. Mm. It was like, there's nothing for me to fall back on. This, if this doesn't work, 
you know, I'm completely asked out. There's, there's, there's no um, magic, uh, magic wand that's gonna make everything okay. Like, yeah, I'm, 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 yeah. It's, it would be a horrible situation for me not to succeed. Um, so, um, uh, but I would always do my push-ups, always lift my weights. I would always do something physical to kind of snap me out of that, out of that um, negative vibration. Right, and snap me out of the funk. And yeah, sitting around. Exactly. That's that's really good advice, man. For a lot of people, just get physical. Go run a something. walk or jog and get your blood flowing to get your mind back right. I think so. Because them downtimes, people don't realize that in this business that we are in, there are downtimes. <laughs> that those are tough. Ooh. Those are those are very hard. If you sit there and you start figuring out, well, maybe I shouldn't have did this. And maybe, you know what I mean? Start maybe this is what. Yeah, yourself. you start second guessing the crap out of yourself. Punished for that. <laughs> well, maybe I should have went to school, and maybe I need to let this go. But this is the this is the only thing that gives you that feeling. This is the only thing that that makes you happy. Right. And and, and I'd rather be happy. Yeah, it's so important. That's another thing I learned. It's interesting you say that. Is the happiness. It's not just about the money you make. It's just about also loving what you do. Because I've run into all different types of people from all different types of um, classes in the class system. And I've run into a lot of people who are a lot of hedge fund dudes, a lot of tech dudes who are wealthy, but they just unfulfilled and they're not happy. Which, you know, coming from Harlem, that's fascinating to me. I'd be like, how do you, you make this much money? How are you not? You should be ecstatic. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but they, they, it's, they're not really doing what they want to do. They're doing what they're good at. Right. But it's not what they really would like to be doing. Right. You know. And and I'm they, lucky I get to do what I like to do. That's right. And they always, and it's funny because dudes from those walks of life, and they always want to rub shoulders with the creative. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, they can be the smartest person in the room. They can be the biggest CEO, and they can be running this company, and this company has done this, that, and the third, and they always want to rub shoulders with the people that they look at, more creative people are having more freedom. So crazy, because I know cats that um, that work that angle, and you know, and I didn't catch on at first, but they were like, yo, come to this party with me. It's a, some kind of t- after uh, tech party seminar type shit or something, and I would just get swarmed <laughs> by these tech people. And shit. I'm like, damn. And then after a while, I was like, wait a second, man, you trying to get funding for a project? <laughs> you, know what I'm yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't work angles. Like I'm, I'm very, I'm very straightforward. Which is probably why it took me as long as it's taken me to, you know, actually get to where I'm at and hopefully where I'm going is. Is um I don't I don't do the little sneaky freaky you know I'm just straight up you know this this is what I can bring to the table and that's it but um I you don't, don't seem to be the type uh Bo Kane and I've known you for well over twenty years but you don't seem to be you're not good at the Hollywood schmooze shit are you I'm horrible I'm horrible at this and you don't like bullshit <laughs> I'm the worst at it man oh my god my manager my and executive producer they get so mad at me sometimes because they be like you need to go here it's a good look I'm like fuck that look I'm not I don't want I don't like it I don't I'm not that I can't I don't like I'm like now I'm even like 2018. I don't even want to have a meeting. Right. Like I want to yeah, get the bro. meeting on the on the on the freaking thing. Like call yeah, me when we really, shit, yeah, man. because I get my hopes up high about doing something with somebody, and then the shit fall through. You know what? You know, guys like us, we don't want to show a little leg. Is what it is. That's and true. We, and what you supposed to do when you go in the you know, schmooze? You supposed to 
you know, like like a chick back in the day, show show a little leg, you know what I'm saying, and, and get them it get them to thinking that maybe you know what I'm saying they might get some some shit. Yeah, maybe you know, we uh, could do something together. I'm, yeah, I'm just no, no I'm no good at it. I'm straightforward. Yeah. I I'm like you, bro. I'm just straightforward. I'm not gonna play that bullshit, and then especially in L. A. Oh my God, shit. the bullshit is knee deep. But I remember one time when I heard uh, Spike Lee said there's not a black person in L.A. that can green light a picture. Mm-hmm. After that, I stopped talking to motherfuckers. Like, what am I have a meeting with you for? You still you still got to go to your boss to get this project done. That's a good point. Man. So I might as well just That's introduce myself point. to your boss. Indeed. Indeed. Fuck man. I need to talk to you for. You waste your time driving and having lunches and all this. Oh, Yo, man. You know what it is, bro? It's like back in the day when they would have dudes that was like, um, they wasn't a master. But the master would have say, you you know, you keep these niggers in line. Right. You know, these guys. The overseer. They, yeah, the overseer. <laughs> the Hollywood overseer. The Hollywood overseer. Trying to hustle, hustle up some new slaves and shit. And, you know, would you let them know, look, I'm not a slave. You know, and they'd be like, oh, well, you're not going to get anywhere. And they'd be like, hey, maybe not, but at least I'm not no slave. Yeah, at the end of the day, I'm not a slave. And, I, and I'm quite sure that you get these, too. Yo, man, I got this project. I want you, and then you'd be like, okay, where, um, where's, where's the financing? Right. That's where you come in. <laughs> oh, well, I just, well, see, that's why I was talking, because I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you to my man so-and-so, you know what I'm saying? You just show a little leg. I mean, uh, just show up, and then, uh, you know. <laughs> right. Like, you're the, you're you in know, charge you know, of getting the financing for his project. Yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, Another waste of time. Yeah. I, I, oh, man. I, I can't do it, man. And, and, I'm, and I'm blessed to where I'm in a position where I can politely say, Listen, um, you know, when you're all ready to make a pay or play offer to me, you know, call my agent. You know right. what I mean? So, yeah, man. I've been jumping in cars and driving all the way out to Roscoe's and shit and sitting there talking to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, don't even have the fucking power to influence to make shit happen. Absolutely. And then they try to hit, sit you with half the bill and shit. Yes, yes, sir. Or the whole bill. <laughs> right. Or the entire bill. Oh, that goes so you know. Right now, we're we're, we're uh, here. We we doing this podcast. Come on, on the podcast with Bo King Woodbine. We're in Atlanta, Georgia. Indeed, this is Black Hollywood. Oh yeah, or as they call it, Hollywood. Duh. <laughs> because I'm serious. L. A. Now, I believe if I'm not if I I may have to be stood corrected, but there's more pictures and television done here now. Yeah, man. Than actually in Los Angeles now. I believe that's the truism because of the tax breaks that they give and all that stuff. First, it was they went, they left LA, went up to Toronto. Because when I was doing Psych, when I did Psych a couple of times, we shot up there. We no, actually not Toronto, uh, the other one, Vancouver. Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So we're all the way up in Vancouver, and then they were shooting in Toronto and Vancouver, and Canada was the look then. Yep. And then Atlanta got smart and was like, let's start giving some tax incentives. Sure. And everybody started. Tyler Perry got a studio here, and Marvel does a lot of their movies here. When I was doing Spider-Man, this, I was here for three months. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was, did you enjoy that? When you, were, you were a villain, right? Yeah. I was I was one of the classic, if you're into the Spider-Man lore, if you're hip to the Spider-Verse, you know what I'm saying? The Spider-Verse, the Marvel, you know what I'm Marvel Universe. You know what I'm saying? You would recognize um, the Shocker as one of yes. those classic That's right. Spider-Man villains. They decided to bring him to the big screen. I was thrilled, man. I was so thrilled. That's big budget, thrilled, bro. bro. I, I remain thrilled because it's like, you know, we gonna see the shocker again. Yes, you know sir. So it's just like I got a little bobblehead shocker, a Lego shocker. Do you? I got action figures, man. That's dope. It's crazy.
crazy, man. It's crazy. You the shotgun on the other I'm side of that Mackie's the Falcon, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. I've been fucking with Mackie for a long time. Mackie's the Falcon, dude. Shit is ill. It's crazy. We got, we got, yo. We, we got Black Panther coming out. Yo, it's crazy. Black Panther has did more pre-sale tickets than any other movie in Marvel history. It's crazy. Get Chadwick, ready. go ahead, bro. Get ready. It's Chadwick, Chadwick went from freaking Jackie Robinson to James Brown to the Black Panther. That and Thurgood Marshall. And Thurgood, and Thurgood Marshall. Marshall, yeah. Yeah, whatever somebody black got to be portrayed, we got to go hit Chadwick. Chadwick portrayed. Yo, Chadwick is dope, though. I, Take mad at I can't him, wait to sit across from him and talk to him about his career. But you were in Ray. Yeah. Yeah, brother. I was in Ray, man. 2003, New Orleans. Never forget it. Great film. Oh man, great experience! Just an incredible. I did you did? Well, you a guitar player, and you mm -hmm. were playing. Well, you were playing baritone sax. I was playing the. Uh, I was playing the tenor, but I. I, I did you have to learn the well, fingering and? Yeah, I learned how to play um, note for note. Um, every song that I played in the movie because I, I played sax um, before I got turned on to guitar. Okay. I learned how to um, play the sax when I was like twelve. So you actually was playing sax in the movie. Yeah. Go ahead, my brother. Yeah, we would we work on set for like twelve hours. And I would go back to my hotel room, and um, I would put a, a towel in the horn to mute the horn. Right. So the neighbors didn't complain. You know they do have saxophone mutes, right? You should have told somebody on set yeah, to get you one. Yeah, well, <laughs> bro, I was... <laughs> All you had to do was ask for I know. Bro. I, I, I probably should have, but yeah. back then I, I would make certain things harder for myself than they had to be. <laughs> So um so then I would practice the um the uh notations for the music for the next day. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know you actually played sax in that movie. Yeah. I know Jamie played a lot of piano because I've been around Jamie a long time. And he actually can play the oh, piano. Jamie can get down. He 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 plays for real. I think it's one of the reasons he got the gig. And uh, he was just a great cat. His energy, man, on set. He was like a team leader and shit. You know, uh, uh, you know, because we we got a lot of disparate elements on the set of Ray. There's a lot of different energy, a lot of different types of personalities, and uh, we all got along. Everybody, you know, is loved to this day. Um, but he was—he really was the leader. You know what I'm saying? And um, he did a fantastic job of keeping everybody's energy up. Cause there was some long ass days in them clothes they used to wear back in them days, man. <laughs> Jesus Christ, man, them shits was hot. Oh, I was like a, a lot of wool, huh? Oh my, God. a lot of thick wool. Yo. I was like, cats would just, what, just walk around like this? With like, hard bottoms on all day. Oh, shit. <laughs> Yo, man. And Taylor. Those shirts are not the same. It ain't the same kind of shirt we wear today. This shit is heavy. It's like yeah. chain, mail, chain mail or some shit. It's like armor or some shit. And <laughs> I was like, yo, this is how cats used to walk around. like, and, and and you look clean, you look sharp. But when you're on stage, what he would do sometimes with Taylor is... He would take all the air conditioning out of the room, yeah, or the um, not an air conditioner, but a big old uh, tube of air, kind uh -huh. of this long tube, and he would take it all out, and then we would start rolling, and then we would shoot, you know, and there's like a hundred of us in a little sweat box, yo, it's like damn near pass out heat, and then they say cut, and everybody's like, oh shit, <laughs> and then they would bring in the um, the air, right, and then the coolest off and everything like that. Because you can't have the air running while you're shooting because you can hear it. Not only that, he said, because I asked him about that. I was like, so why don't you know what's what's, what's going on with the with the suffocation, man? He, was just, <laughs> <laughs> he said, I want the audience to feel 
the humidity. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, well, I I I, I think they're gonna feel it. You know? Yeah, man. So, oh my god, you had it. Does it does it make you proud? If you're in a film and you're a significant part of a film like Ray, and you watch Jamie win an Academy Award for it, yeah, because um, you 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 were there with the person that went through the struggle, and you know how hard they pushed themselves mm-hmm. to get it, and it's it was to me it remains a source of pride. You know, I definitely think I know he deserved it, and um, I'm proud that that um, he carried the team. Like I said, he was the team leader. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 always like a, a a pleasant feeling whenever somebody brings up Ray or if it comes on TV or something like that. Right. So many great great memories associated with making that picture. Is it tough? Is it tough carrying a movie? Because uh, I know I was in Drain. I did. Who's the man? And we damn near every scene. And I'm like, come on. I was like, I will never want to just be the focal point of a movie again. There's a joke that actors uh, uh, say. It's like when you find out you got the lead, you're like, I got the lead. And then right after that, you're like, oh, shit, I got the lead. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of work. Yo, it's, it's easier to be the assassin, man, to be the mercenary. Like me, I'm a mercenary, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You give me the lay of the land. You know, I sharpen my tools, whatever. I go in and I do what I got to do. And then I bounce, you know what I'm saying? Um, that having been said, um, there's something to be said for having those lead roles in your um, uh, uh, repertoire, I guess right. you could say. You know what I'm saying? Having those lead roles in your stash because what it does is it just gives you different type of muscles. Like this this gig that I just did just now, um, uh, Unsolved, mm-hmm was very, very challenging for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that made it so challenging is the procedural element, like, you know, um, meaning like shows like Law and Order, CSI, what have you, those are considered procedurals, mm-hmm. um, where you're dealing with the very, um, you know, uh, specific minutia of detail, and um, you have to convey to the audience certain aspects of the job that they might not be aware of, like Grey's Anatomy or something like that. Most people aren't doctors. Most people aren't cops. So you have to be able to give that information to the audience in a professional way, this, that, and the other. But there's such an abundance of info and so many details and um, so many scenes required to convey the story. So I would have episodes where um, I would have more scenes in one episode than I did, say, in Fargo uh, the whole season. Right. Because in Fargo I had probably, you know, I was only maybe in two or three scenes per episode, so let's say it's 25 scenes. Uh, we would do uh, episodes on Unsolved where I would have like 34. Wow. 34 scenes out of 52. Wow. So almost every other scene I'm in. And that volume... Um, preparing all of that material for 10 episodes, you know what I'm saying, where every single episode you got 30 or let's say an average of 30 scenes, that shit blew my mind. Towards the end, there were a few times where I realized um, sometimes you're going to come to set and you're going to have to take your inspiration from your other actors and you're going to have to trust your director 
And, you know, you got to always know your lines no matter what. But you, you're not going to be um, putting in six hours on one scene the same way you did in the beginning of the season mm. because there's just not that time. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just comes times where you'll be like, look, I know my lines, but I'm still I'm still kind of feeling my way around the scene. And you will find other actors be like, well, shit, I've been doing this th- that the whole time. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I know my lines, but I'm, you know, I'm feeling my way around the whole scene. And me, I'm a, I'm a prep preparation freak like I'm obsessed about preparing um, because early in my career there was a few times when I didn't prepare and I, I feel like I have to live with that because the movies is out there people can see them this that and the other um, so when I made after I made those mistakes I, I went in the other direction and I became obsessed with preparing 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 um, but what this taught me is that if you have a great director like Anthony Hemingway, mm-hmm. you know your lines, your heart's in the right place, and you're open to suggestion, you can get through the scene and you can still deliver a good scene. Um, and that's what it taught me. Um, um, so I don't know if I would do a procedural again just just for the simple fact that it's so much work um, that goes into something that's so... Uh, specific like if you're a fireman or a policeman or a doctor or a lawyer those four professions have very specific vernacular code you know ways you got to be this that and the other and it's a little bit um restrictive mm-hmm. um it's rewarding any challenges that you step up to is rewarding but um it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I would do another one. Well, I'll tell you that. You killed that one, man. Oh. And it, it is coming out on February 27th. All right. Unsolved on the USA Network. Always a pleasure, my brother. Always a pleasure. From Harlem, New York, Mr. Bo King Whitbine in the building with me. Come on, son, the podcast. Y'all keep God first. Everything else will fall into place. We'll talk at you, with you, to you, and about that ass. Next Monday, be good. If you can't be good, be careful. You can't be careful. Name your baby Bo Keem, all right? <laughs> good, solid name, right? What does Bo Keem mean? Hey, my dad said it came to him in a dream. You're the only dude I ever met from Harlem named Bo Keem. <laughs> Believe that. All right, thank you, Chris Hayes. Thank you, Kimana Paulus. And thank you to everybody for listening to the podcast, man. It's come on, son, the podcast. I'm at Lover. Now, come on, son. Fuck out of here with that bullshit. Later. (laughs) This Ed Lover podcast is being done in conjunction with Cigars International. Make sure you check out CigarsInternational.com for all your cigar needs. This episode of Come On, Son, the podcast is produced and engineered by co-executive producers Kimana Paulus and Krista Hayes. Recorded at Mean Street Studios in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, this is an official Loudspeakers Network podcast.